I'm Shannon Theobald, and this is Big Food, Big Future, where we teach you how to make a positive impact in the food system to leverage influence for good. Thanks for coming. I am so glad you're here to chat today. talking about ears and chefs. No, but really, I've got a great story for you. But in all honesty, today's episode is about what it means to be an international brand and how we can take that understanding to expand future food products, not only exponentially, but sustainably. So listen, I heard the buzz about Nova Meat all the way from San Francisco. Nova Meat is based in Spain. So that's pretty incredible. They're doing something right. This combines two technologies that I'm so excited about. Nova Meat marries plant-based technology and biotech and it has a really interesting Genesis story with a few funny bits I think you'll like too. So I want to introduce founder of Nova Meat, Giuseppe Sciante. All right, I'm here with Giuseppe Sciante and he is founder of Nova Meat, which is a very exciting plant-based 3D printing startup. And would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, Giuseppe? Yes, first, it's a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, I'm glad with uh, your podcast is going very well. So myself, I am a bioengineer uh, by background. And I've been studying first in Italy, in Politecnico di Milano, then in Sweden, in Chalmers University in Gothenburg. And there, I started focusing on something called tissue engineering, uh, it's, a, it's a field of research where you try to build artificial organs uh, in the labs and try to implant them uh, in patients to regenerate parts of the body. And then I made a PhD in uh, teaching engineering. I worked in the UCL in London for a period, in Chile, and then I came back to Barcelona. And in the last three years, I had been working as assistant professor and postdoc researcher in the field of uh, tissue engineering. Uh, especially with the new technologies such as bioprinting technologies that allow to generate micro-structured um, tissues so that you can implant them and they really resemble the tissue that you want to regenerate. Uh, and then uh, the last uh, year, I decided that uh, I had this uh, idea. So I moved to food tech for uh, for a mistake at the beginning because I invented something that I was not expecting. Mm, very intriguing. Yeah, I, I was really wondering about that. I noticed you have a very scientific background, which I think is really a strength in food tech founders. So how did you arrive at this solution, especially since, you know, you're doing plant-based when you do have this amazing um, biofabrication background? Yes. So I was working on this bioprinting advanced technique. And I generated a kind of uh, ear prototype that would work as a prototype for studies on uh, uh, implant, future implants, uh, for, uh, for example, for uh, um, generating an ear substitute. <clears throat> but when I generated this uh, ear substitute, I found out that the texture and appearance really resembled the one of uh, um, human or animal tissues in general. So I went to talk to very famous chefs here in uh, Catalonia, 
We have mm -hmm. uh, Ferran Andrea, is one of the most famous chefs in the world. We have a restaurant, Sayer de Carroca. The last years, they have been the best restaurant in the world, according to the restaurants magazine. I think this wow. year they are still second, so in top three. They've been first in the world for many years. Um, <clears throat> and I thought that I could uh, show them that uh, this, uh, this uh, technology allowed me to create something that resembled animal tissues. So when I went there, then I had this, uh, this idea. Why can't I create um, an animal tissue instead? And select instead of the biomaterials that I'm using to generate something that should be implanted, why can't I use plant-based materials? Because uh, we as tissue engineers, we are a few, the few in the world that are able to regenerate a piece of organ with natural ingredients or natural materials. Uh, so for this reason, I started. The mistake was that I wanted to create uh, an artificial ear and I found out that the texture and appearance was so interesting that that could be applied to food tech. Amazing. And how did the chefs react to the idea of a uh, biomanufactured piece of meat or alternative meat? Yeah, it was funny because at the beginning I went there with the, with an ear. I didn't go there with an actual prototype of uh, a, <laughs> a real meat. ear. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, not a real ear, of course, but a near substitute. So it was just at the beginning. So it was very, very funny because... Um, I didn't go there with the natural plant-based meat substitutes at the beginning. When I went there to show them this uh, artificial uh, ear, uh, I thought that uh, this could be applied to generate a plant-based meat, meat substitute instead. And uh, their reaction was uh, very interesting because uh, some of them told me that this was uh, very interesting for them. Um, more on the industrial side, so trying to scale these up and create something that has at the same time the taste, the texture, the appearance, and the nutritional properties of uh, meat, but of course uh, doing that with only plant-based ingredients. Others, <coughs> others try to um, convince me to try to select the ingredients in the best way so that this could be useful for customized nutrition, personalized nutrition, or uh, in general, trying to keep uh, the ingredients as uh, natural and as safe as possible, which means uh, trying to use uh, the same ingredients that you would use in your kitchen or in your restaurants and uh, select them so that uh, you can have the, this pro product at the end that is a plant-based meat substitute. And in specific, what I'm trying to work on is a plant-based uh, beef stick substitute. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, that's really cool to hear um, that the chef saw that potential too, because, you know, last year when I was writing my book about uh, biomanufacturing and personalization, mm -hmm. I initially encountered some chefs that were skeptical, but then when I told them about the potential, they were so excited. So it's good to hear that, you know, that's reinforced from some of the best chefs in the world. Yes, especially if you talk with the, the most innovative chefs and the best in the world, they normally are best also because they are visionaries and they try new mm -hmm. things, right? So normally traditional chefs don't risk that much as these super chefs. Can you believe he brought a literal ear to a chef, right? Like imagine the look on their face. <laughs> and what's crazy to me is that the chefs were into it, right? Like, when I wrote my book, of course, this was about, gosh, two years ago now. Wow. But the chefs I spoke to were a bit 
trepidatious at first. And, you know, it's so exciting and encouraging to me that these chefs were just immediately intrigued. This is such a good sign for the industry and, you know, for our taste buds, considering chefs are pretty important in making things taste great. But anyway, my question, which we'll discuss with Giuseppe in a bit, is will this be true all over? So this chef was one of the best in Catalonia. And it's so amazing that Giuseppe got this reaction. What will it be like in other areas for other chefs? In order to answer that question, I want to take a look at a food brand that has done so well at capturing international taste. Now, let me tell you, I bet you don't expect what's coming. But as a proud East Coast-born gal, gotta represent. And this will always have a special place in my heart. Dunkin' Donuts. Or I should say Dunkin' now, shouldn't I? <laughs> Here's their story. Here's what makes them stick out internationally and what's allowed them to have great reception worldwide. Now this article was originally featured on Global Marketing Professor, which I'll link in the show notes. But for now, let me just read it to you. Dunkin' Donuts strives to embody its founding characteristics of fast, friendly service and affordability. These key elements have been the building blocks of brand success. Through implementing digital strategies and a mobile customer rewards program that helps customers save money through loyalty points, DD continues to build value by increasing customer convenience. Capitalizing on online and digital platforms allows for DD to stay relevant and competitive. Relevance cannot be attained without constant growth. Dunkin' Donuts is 100% franchised, a business model that lends itself to promoting growth in local markets and ultimately growth on an international scale. DD locations are operated by local business owners who are connected to the population they serve and understand local tastes. This allows for DD to capitalize on meeting consumer needs through modifying small details, such as menu offerings, and further promote their strong brand. Dunkin' Donuts has also established valuable partnerships with celebrities, athletes, and influences the world over. The brand can leverage these relationships to increase visibility and further ingrain themselves in the mind of the customer. The next step for DD is, without question, to continue to evolve and embrace rapid change. By embracing modern consumer technologies and mobile applications, Dunkin' Donuts can become a part of their customers' daily life and continue to meet consumer expectations. In today's society, consumer tastes preferences, and purchasing habits rapidly shift. Dunkin' Donuts has proved to be an ideal example of how a successful global strategy can allow a brand to not only survive, but thrive. As I see it, Dunkin's success is attributable to three aspects. First, better basics. You're going to do something, do it well, first and foremost. Dunkin' is such a great example of this. Two, Local relevance. How do people in this specific locale interact with your products? Interact with your category or with food as a whole? This is all 
very, very important to your knowledge of the landscape itself. And three, partnerships. Now, this is particularly interesting when we're thinking about meat alternatives because who would we partner with, right? Well, from Duncan's experience, it seems clear that partnerships must invoke trust and just a sense of familiarity and of loyalty, right? It's the same as any any brand tribe. So you may be thinking, you know, cool, donuts, great, I'm hungry, but how is this relevant to really implementing alternative protein on the ground? Well, remember what Giuseppe said before about personalization, because that's where the real opportunity lies here. Duncan's success was a form of personalization on a global scale. So what would global personalization even look like in the alternative protein realm? I asked Giuseppe that question. Have you found, I'm curious, any differences country to country uh, between chefs? Or is it pretty much the same intrigue to reception wherever you go? Yes, I've seen differences. So, for example, in the north of Europe, there is a lot of interest in trying to use in insect proteins and try to do yeah. that instead. Here, the interest is in the south of Europe, so Mediterranean areas, because Bloomberg, as you know, they put Italy and Spain as the most health, healthy countries in the world. Mm -hmm. They try to keep the food uh, quality is uh, most the most important, you know, uh, factor. In other countries, uh, I've seen, uh, for example, uh, most uh, in, more interest in trying to do something that really resembles the taste instead. So it depends on the country. Some uh, some have some priorities, some others. In general, uh, the product being healthy and the product being fit for flexitarians, so this group of people yeah. that try to decrease the amount of meat, so they would be interested even more than vegans and vegetarians, in having a meat substitute that really resembles uh, uh, meat. Uh, I've seen this interest uh, all over the world and also uh, the interest in trying to use this uh, for the environment. Environment includes um, fight against climate change, trying to uh, disrupt the livestock system, either for wealth, animal welfare uh, or, or also um, because of the inefficiency of the system. So there are different reasons depending on the country. What I know is also, for example, China has pushed a lot on this uh, through governmental action. And this is uh, mostly because uh, there has been an increase in price uh, of beef stick due to the uh, pig uh, fever, right? Mm -hmm. So for there yeah. are different reasons. Uh, for example, in China, they are mostly interested more on uh, being... Uh, that being healthy, and also um, the government is interested in being sustainable as uh, a way to manage the resources of the country. So, because the, the population there is growing very much. In other countries where the population is not growing very much, it's about the corporates that want to try to uh, provide food um, that is more interesting to consumers. Now that the consumers are increasing the, their um, buying the bigger amounts of uh, meat substitutes. And we have seen uh, the University of Hohenheim in Stuttgart calculated that there was an increase in the last five years of uh, 450% in uh, market mm. in the meat substitutes. And we've seen the same in the United States. Last year, Nielsen calculated that it was around 24% increase in just one year in market demand. 
from plant-based meat substitutes. That's amazing. Yeah, it's growing so quickly. So now that's really interesting what you said about population growth. So do you think that uh, whether it's for Nova Meat or for other companies, um, would you go for a more multinational approach or would you try to provide the same products just marketed differently uh, in countries that are growing quite quickly population-wise versus countries that aren't? Yeah. So Novamit is a company that is a startup now and it's uh, developing technology. Uh, we are not selling uh, products, which means uh, products, uh, food products um, at the moment, which means that we provide technology to generate uh, plant-based meat substitutes. And this technology is uh, can be for plant-based meat uh, or plant-based uh, companies, uh, food producers, but also can be for corporates. So we are starting now, we are just at the beginning, where we try to provide this technology to have a real impact on the world. So if you provide technology, uh, you don't need to uh, worry that much uh, on the consumer's need at the yeah. end when you already know that these companies that already produce that and they can produce with your technology. They already know uh, their consumers. They already know which provider they should uh, pro select as ingredients. So um, I, what I, th I think there is a big difference in between the Western countries uh, or even Western Asia together compared to, of course, uh, the rural areas of the planet where there is no access uh, to meat in general. So the big difference is uh, the amount of meat that we eat in uh, in the world, right? Some countries like Europe and the United States have uh, very high uh, meat consumption uh, compared to other countries, uh, for example, in Africa. So when I talk to the World Food Program and the F and, uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, what I've seen is a big difference. And uh, this technology can serve for different reasons. So in some areas, for example, Europe, US, or even uh, China someday soon, um, the technology can allow to generate something that has the same uh, price, uh, range of price as normal meat, and become an alternative, which is interesting for the consumers, of course, for different reasons, uh, health reasons, uh, environmental reasons, animal welfare reasons, but also it's interesting uh, um, because you can customize food for the for the people at an eye level in the sense that you can provide food for uh, sports uh, athletes in the future. You can provide uh, customized food for restaurants, right, with new uh, technology. For example, at the beginning now, we are using a 3D printer adapted uh, for Novamit, and in the future we will scale up, right? But uh, already at the beginning, we are able to personalize for innovative restaurants. The big difference um, between the more uh, rich countries of the world and let's say, the rural areas of the planet, uh, it's there, for example, they don't have access to meat. So they normally eat 10 times less meat than what we eat in right. Europe and uh, in the uh, US. So, for example, in, uh, in areas uh, of Africa or even in India where they don't eat uh, that much uh, meat, uh, mm -hmm. providing something that is uh, more economic and that has the texture of meat, right, uh, using... Uh, having something that is not very expensive, but um, this can be very interesting. For example, imagine uh, this pro uh, technology used for humanitarian purposes, which means that uh, instead of giving 
this kind of um, food that uh, they need, for example, to avoid deficiency in amino acids or uh, deficiency in vitamins. You can provide this food instead of uh, uh, in a uh, drink format. You can provide this in a meat-like format. So the people yeah. that are not used to have that uh, would think that this is amazing and will be uh, more happy uh, to uh, eat that and uh, the government will be happy if the people have the right uh, nutrient. Definitely. And I think, you know, what you're doing specifically is so important because there's so many both plant-based and cell-based meat startups popping up right now, which is so exciting. The space is growing really fast. But, you know, a big part of what inspired me to create this podcast in the first place was facilitating a bridge between larger companies who have that influence and that distribution capability uh, to really get that market permeation and smaller companies who are producing using this technology. So, you know, you have the ability to provide companies of all sizes with that technology. Different cultures aren't what causes the personalization, so to speak. It's way more complicated than that. And that's why this is such an interesting opportunity. Because cultural differences lead to motivational differences. Now, I've been talking about global food lately and thinking about food as a global system, right? It's something that affects us all. But different ways of life and different cultural values lead to different reasons for making dietary changes. An alternative protein product might do great in two countries, but the reason for that could be completely different. Now, even in addition to this, government priorities, right? Now, I am certainly not an international relations expert, nor am I an economist, but I think we can all agree that Government priorities and economic objectives play a huge part in what will succeed in a given market. So it seems that in order to create a successful international strategy that integrates chefs and governments and everyone with a stake in this, right, which really is everyone, we have to both follow Duncan's example to the basics well look for local relevance, look for similar products, and what has resonance in your market. But we also have to have this wider view, almost empirical, of what motivations, aside from just experience, are driving people to make certain nutrition, dietary, purchase choices. What are the primary motivations in the market at hand? And why do they exist? What are government priorities? And what are economic objectives? Are there any significant competitors? What are prices like? All of these facets have to come together to create a successful global strategy and to be successful in creating a global food future, which is not only sustainable, but which is enthusiastically supported even in incredibly different places.